0: Welcome to Settling the Score, the podcast where we discuss the great film scores.
1: I'm John. And I'm Andy. And we've been going down the American Film Institute's 100 Years of Film Scores, their list of purportedly the top 25 scores in American cinema history. We're down to number 20 on the list.
0: Which means that in this episode, we're going to be talking about Henry Mancini's score for the 1963 farce, The Pink Panther.
1: The Pink Panther was produced by Martin Giroux, was written by Maurice Richland and Blake Edwards, and it was directed by Blake Edwards. John, give us a sense of The Pink Panther.
0: Uh, yeah, well, The Pink Panther is a madcap gadabout fun time in 1960s swingin' jet-setting high society, and uh, maybe there's like jewel themes or something.
1: Right. It stars David Niven as maybe like a jewel thief or something. It stars Peter Sellers as a hilarious inspector, you may have heard of. It stars Robert Wagner as a handsome young guy. And it stars Capucine and Claudio Cardinale as sexy ladies. And the Pink Panther as the credits.
0: <laughs> yeah, there's a, there's a cartoon in the credits of the character, the Pink Panther. Which has nothing to do with the movie, but that's the thing that uh, is probably most memorable about the movie. In the movie, David Niven, the debonair jewel thief, tries to steal the diamond, which is eponymously named the Pink Panther, from Claudia Cardinale, and Peter Sellers, as Inspector Clouseau, tries to stop him. Good enough? Good enough. Andy, did you ever watch the Pink Panther cartoons when you were a kid?
1: I watched so many cartoons when I was a kid that I have no particular recollection of. Probably I did. I remember it
0: was was like a particular show. Didn't you have the Pink Panther show that played on Saturday morning cartoons?
1: Yeah, Saturday morning was like a time when you never knew who was going to come over. Did the Pink Panther come over sometimes? He might have.
0: I think he did. And I think he was always trying to mess stuff up for this little funny dude with a mustache.
1: Yeah, I can picture him.
0: Was that guy supposed to be Inspector Clouseau, or was it a different dude with a mustache?
1: I think he was kind of a straight man stand-in because the character of Inspector Clouseau wasn't available to them or something.
0: Well, in any case, the Pink Panther was like twice as tall as this guy. (laughs) (laughs) So I don't know what that means.
1: Do you think that the Pink Panther and Snagglepuss were related or a couple or knew each other in some way?
0: (laughs) They must have been at the same functions a lot of the time.
1: It would have been awkward, right?
0: (laughs) Yeah, they're constantly wearing what each other are wearing. Did you ever use, uh, go to a hardware store and buy Pink Panther fiberglass insulation?
1: Not really a product that you think hilarious cartoon kid-friendly mascot would be that useful for their marketing.
0: Yeah, I remember being kind of freaked out any time i had to come near that stuff
1: yeah it's scary i'm not sure where we're gonna go with this but yes the pink panther
0: i think where we go with it is that uh <laughs> the pink panther is all over the place and the way that he is remembered in popular culture these days i think is pretty far outside of where this movie is
1: here's what i want to say at the outset Let's not beat around the bush. (laughs) This was on the AFI list so they could play the Pink Panther theme in that concert. No one who voted for this went back and watched the Pink Panther, thought about the movie or the score. This is there because of that tune, which is super famous in its own right. And now we're going to talk about the movie because we did more homework than they did. That's how I feel. Yeah. Do you think that's true?
0: That's certainly true. And yeah, now you're making me feel... Like I wasted my time doing all the homework that I did. Where I, I went and actually paid <laughs> no, attention. No, it's good to that the, we did the homework. It's good. So now people get to hear the homework that we did about
1: something that <laughs> we are now going to talk about the Pink Panther because the AFI told us to. <laughs>
0: so I watched this movie twice again, and uh, the second time I watched it, I was moved to do the following experiment. I actually got out a stopwatch and I timed the total amount of time that there was what I would consider to be score music playing, which is to differentiate it from source music and soundtrack music.
1: Mm -hmm. Makeout music, I was thinking of it as. Yeah, I thought this is a movie that has a score and a makeout album.
0: You can see David Niven put on essentially what must be the soundtrack album that was released for this movie so that he can make up with Claudia Cardinale along to it.
1: Yeah, it's in his liquor cabinet. He's got a little record player with a copy of the Pink Panther soundtrack. I mean, we're joking. It's not necessarily the Pink Panther soundtrack, but he's got but a little- But it's the
0: el- tunes that are on the Pink Panther soundtrack.
1: Exactly, yeah. The Pink Panther soundtrack consists of a theme from the Pink Panther and then a bunch of party music that you would never guess was the soundtrack to a movie. It's just party music.
0: But you hear it all through the movie You hear all of those tracks being played In parties through the movie
1: Right Okay, we'll talk about what that means about this movie But I did the same calculation, so this is exciting Let's find out if we came to the same numbers
0: Okay, so the movie starts out With about a five minute sequence That has music under all of it And it's the sequence that introduces Several different locations and the various characters So the first thing we see Is Rome and some goings on In Rome Then uh, it cuts to Hollywood, I think, where we meet Robert Wagner's character. And then it cuts to Paris, where we see Capucine up to no good, doing some jewel thieving. So this whole sequence plays, and there's music playing under all of it. Music changes to uh, nod towards all these different locations, to nod at the different action and the different characters that are going on. So it's about five minutes of continuous score music. Definitely score during this part. For the rest of the movie, and it's about an hour and 55 minute movie, the rest of the movie, I only counted about 15 more minutes of what I could generously call scoring music. Uh, What numbers did you get?
1: I calculated by the cue. And there were some cues that kind of started out as just background music, but then they smoothly transitioned into actual accompaniment. So my number might be a little higher than yours. But I got about 30 minutes of score and then about 30 minutes of party.
0: Okay, so let's do some definitions here. So when we say score music, and we're differentiating that from other uses of music, what does that mean exactly, score music?
1: I was thinking of it as meaning that there's action in the movie that has some dramatic significance that the music is trying to help with, to try to help the audience get into the action.
0: I think the defining characteristic of score music was that it was written to picture, that it was originally composed, it was not a tune that was a pre-existing song or or melody that is being used against the picture, although that does happen a bunch in this movie. But score is music that is written specifically to the picture and to the action on the screen that the audience winds up getting to see.
1: Well, that sounds like a good definition, but are you saying you don't think that the party scenes were music written for those particular party scenes? Because I think they were.
0: Oh, they were written for those scenes, but they weren't written to picture. He could have written that music months before the film was shot, and then it gets put against that scene in post-production. For it to be score, it has to be something that has been shot and edited, and then the composer watches it and responds to the picture with music.
1: Yes, but I think that it's entirely possible. In fact, I was imagining that this was at least somewhat the case in this movie, that Mancini was responding to the particular scene, and then his response to it, or his assignment for it, was to write what the music on the turntable was in that scene, in that particular scene, and that it wasn't just any old lounge music, it was calculated lounge music to suit the particular... Well, maybe you so. Know, for example, the centerpiece of the make-out music in this movie is the scene where Claudia Cardinale gets drunk on the tiger rug, and there are, I think, a series of three cocktail pieces in the background, and they proceed through the scene right. and I think they've been written to sort of fill the amount of time necessary for that stage in the seduction of this scene
2: I was three years old when I rode my first elephant I was six when I went on my first safari, frazari wild animal hunt and I was ten when I bagged my first tiger. I guess I should insert
1: here that I found this scene totally gross and unamusing and unfun. But nonetheless, Mancini is there. Do we
0: get to talk about things that we found (laughs) gross in this
1: movie? (laughs) (laughs) We get to, John. Just don't run out, like, let's save the time.
0: Uh, Okay, so so let's come around and from the other side then. Let's define these other terms source music and soundtrack music. Source music refers to music that is meant to be heard by the characters in the scene. It's within the world of the movie. So as we're saying for example, David Niven puts a record on in his swanky seduction room and this music is playing so that he and Claudia Cardinale can hear it. So that's source music.
2: I hadn't realized it was so late come in sit down relax have a nice glass of champagne i told
1: you i don't drink right it's how it functions in the movie right but that you know whenever we do these conversations i dig around among people i have connections to who sometimes have copies of score materials so in this case we were able to see a couple of items from this score and see that that piece that he puts on which is called champagne and quail on the soundtrack it was also called Champagne and Quail in the composer's manuscript, and it was composed as, I forget exactly what it is, but like real 2 Q5. It wasn't composed like in a stack of lounge pieces that Mancini had sitting around. It was composed to be real 2 Q5 in this movie. So it's very much a cue for this movie. It's just a cue for a movie that demanded a lot of, as you say, source music, music that's going to be heard coming out of record players or bands.
0: Okay. I would also offer, there's another sort of Functional use of music, which is what I would call soundtrack music. And that is music that is not necessarily being heard by the characters on the scene. It's usually a song, or in the case of this movie, very often instrumental versions of a song that are playing behind a scene.
2: Hello, Duchess. So glad you could come. How are you? Hello, how are you? Hello, darling
0: and so how can you tell that this is soundtrack music and not score well the dead giveaway is at the end of the scene when the scene fades out what happens to the music it's this clunky unceremonious quick fade out of the music that just is a dead giveaway that the music wasn't written to last the amount of time that the scene lasts
2: who's that princess Dala. oh oh excuse me
1: I thought that those were supposed to be audible in the scene. You didn't think that that was actually... I mean, it's sort of in this... It's in a middle ground. It's like...
0: Yeah, it's a middle ground.
1: I mean, the whole movie is a middle ground. So I guess (laughs) let's get into saying this. Like, the movie doesn't really have a plot that makes any sense. It doesn't really follow through on any of its ideas about this being a heist. I mean, a whole hour goes by where we really just see, you know, kind of sniggering sex comedy and nothing about a jewel thief. It's mostly a party movie. It's like a movie about how it feels to be at a ski resort. I'm not sure how intentional that was, but I can imagine in post-production they thought, well, this is what we need to play to. It's relaxed. Here's some background music. Have a drink.
0: (laughs) Yeah. All right. Well, the music is really, uh, That's what it's there for, I guess.
1: I saw an interview of Blake Edwards saying what I didn't even need to hear him say to know it was true, but he actually came right out and said it, which was, If I'm going to make a film, particularly that kind of a film, I'd like to make it in places that have great restaurants at night and great hotels to stay in and places that i have not been before and that's what this looks like it looks like a kind of lazy vacation movie for everyone involved and they as much as possible want the audience to pick up on that because that will legitimize what they've been doing with their time so i just felt like the music was like djing the whole party that the, both the production and the viewing of the movie are supposed to entail and mancini is a great dj You want to talk about things that were gross? Let's just do the...
0: (laughs) Okay, so we're listing things that were gross. Robert Wagner is super rapey.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I mean... (laughs) The movie is super rapey. I'm not really into saying that things are rapey, but this is a very creepy kind of... It has a very Hugh Hefner kind of vibe to it. Yeah, It's like, I discovered that... When you're rich and you go on vacation, you're up, like women become available. I don't really know how it is. it's wonderful. Uh, and <laughs> it's it's creepy in it. it's like it's trying to seem sophisticated.
0: Yeah, so Robert Wagner is absolutely uh, <laughs> fulfilling the Hugh Hefner uh, ethos of yeah, well, sometimes these things just happen except he was Well, he's uh, been
1: cast, but Blake Edwards came up with this stuff. Wouldn't it be hilarious if an incredibly beautiful woman passed out and you had to carry her to your bed? I don't know. Would that be hilarious? Does that count as comedy? Or is something else going on here?
0: Yeah, it, it felt icky. Yeah, on top of the uh, sexual ickiness, there was uh, racial ickiness. I think Claudia Cardinale, who is uh, super Italian, was meant to somehow be Indian. That's right. She's an Indian princess. She's an Indian princess. Becky, my wife, as we were we watched it together, and she like sat bolt upright and exclaimed, <laughs> She's supposed to be the little Indian girl we saw in the beginning?
1: That's crazy. I mean, India's only in there because the whole thing is so lazy. They thought they'd make a movie about the theft of a diamond, but they didn't write a story about the theft of a diamond. They just thought, you know it would be a cool name for a diamond? The Pink Panther. And it would come from India. They got that from the Moonstone or something. I think they got the jewel thief from To Catch a Thief from a few years earlier. I think they just stole a bunch of stuff and then went on vacation. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah. Uh, then there's another, Claudia Cardinale's like, henchman person is also presumably meant to be some ethnicity that he is not. Uh, so that, uh, that element of the movie does not hold up.
1: I would say most elements of the movie don't hold up. Most elements
0: of the movie don't hold up.
1: And I think that that's what happens when you make a party movie because it's about being cool in a way that's very specific to the moment. This movie probably felt a way in 1964 that it hasn't felt since because it's so specific to 1964. That said, there are reviews online that suggest that our response was not unheard of at the time.
0: Way to go, reviewers of the time.
1: Time Magazine's review of the film referred to a pervasive air of desperation. And so knowing that people felt that way, even in 1964, made me feel a little better that this wasn't just about aging poorly. It was... It was about being conceived poorly. And you know what movie came out the previous year with a score by Mancini and very similar themes? Charade, which is about 1000 times better than this. Oh, I
0: really like Charade.
1: Yeah, it's a great movie. And that was Mancini's previous project, I believe. Oh, wow. And, of course, Blake Edwards had worked with Audrey Hepburn on Breakfast at Tiffany's a few years earlier. In the interview I saw, he said he tried to get Audrey to be in this, and she wouldn't. Possibly because she had just done a movie just like it, but better. Also because she had some class. Yeah, because she had some class. Yeah, so The Pink Panther is remembered as a celebrated, timeless comedy. I think not because it's a timeless comedy, but because of...
0: Well, I think it's remembered because of the string of sequels that had spawned. I used to watch these movies as a kid, the, what are they, the Trail of the Pink Panther? The Return of the Pink Panther, I think. Revenge was of the Pink Panther. And then actually the second one in the series, the one that directly followed this, this first one that we're talking about was called A Shot in the Dark, which I remember thinking is much, much better.
1: Yeah, I think that's generally the consensus out there, yeah.
0: So as a kid, I enjoyed the goofy slapstick of Inspector Clouseau, in these other later movies. And that's sort of the direction that the series took. You know, it moved away from this swinging 60s sex party to being just ridiculous bumbling slapstick on the part of Peter Sellers. As a kid, I got a kick out of that. And then at some point, I remember going back and watching this first movie in the series and being really disappointed that that kind of silly slapstick wasn't really what this movie was about. There's a bit of it, but that element hadn't been really crystallized yet.
1: Here's what I remember from when I watched it as a kid. I remember thinking, okay, I know that it's not really about the cartoon Panther. I am mature enough to accept that it's really the name of a diamond, and then being pained and confused to find out that it wasn't even about the diamond. I thought I had really risen to the occasion as a 10-year-old or whatever. Okay, the the cartoon is over it. I'm not going to get to see that panther anymore, but I'm going to be okay with that. I'm going to enjoy this movie because the pink panther is that diamond. That's kind of cool. And then the movie's not about the diamond. You don't see the diamond anymore. They don't talk about it. It's just about grown-ups sitting, looking at each other, drinking, and listening to Henry Mancini music. And I found that so deeply alienating. So...
0: I think we're agreed that this movie doesn't hold up. But obviously the AFI thought that something about it held up. So to give it its due respect, the tune, the melody of the Pink Panther theme by Henry Mancini, really is an enduringly great tune. Of course.
1: Of course it is.
0: Let me get a little bit into the nuts and bolts of why I think that this is such a compelling melody, as a melody, and so memorable. So I'm going to talk about the specific notes in the melody. And in order to do that, I'm just going to refer to the notes in terms of their numbering along the minor scale. So there are these two-note groupings, and I think it's pretty clear to see that These quick little groupings that are often uh, sung to the words dead ant, right? You've heard of that? Dead ant, dead ant. So each dead ant, the important note in that little two-note pair is the ant note. The sort of functional note in each pair is the second note. And so those notes go, a one, a three, a one, a three, a five. And those are the scale degree numbers that I'm saying. So it's the first note in the minor scale, etc. And look what happens. It has one, three, and then it repeats that one and three at a faster tempo. A one, a three, a five. When I was paying attention to how the theme was doing that, uh, well, it reminded me of another theme that we've spoken about recently that we described as being exceptionally musically charismatic, and that's the main theme from On the Waterfront. That also has a 1-3, and then a uh-huh. repeated 1-3, and then a progression from 1 to 3 to 5. Now, it has a slightly different means of repeating. It starts out with a 1-3, and then it sort of backs up and plays some other notes, but then it repeats 1 and 3 then it repeats it one more time and builds up to the five. One, three, four, five. And then some other stuff happens and it lands back down on the flat five, the note between four and five, and then through some other business, resolves back down to the one. Well, look at what happens in the Pink Panther. There's a one, a three, and then it repeats and progresses up to five some other stuff happens and it lands on that same flat five note, this sort of bluesy note. And then it resolves from that bluesy note back down to the one. And I thought that was a remarkable coincidence, maybe not a coincidence, in the similarity between the structures of these two very charismatic, was the word we used before, these two very charismatic tunes. So I think we can look at these two melodies and maybe make some generalizations about what a good melody does. By repeating the movement from one to three, it sets up expectations. It sets up an expectation of moving along a scale or a chord, the three-note minor triad, which are the notes one, three, and five, and then when the melody strikes an unexpected note, the flat five, that creates tension. It's just a well marshaled use of expectation and surprise, and then resolution of the surprise.
1: Yeah, you know what it reminded me of that I thought maybe was intentional, which uses the same thing, although the surprise note is a different note, is the classic silent film tiptoe figure... sure. There it goes up the minor scale and it, it sits on the six as a surprise. But you know, this theme was written essentially as jewel thief music, cat burglar music. And I imagine that he was kind of calling on that as a classic movie sound for someone who tiptoes around. And which, which follows, like you're saying, it establishes that you're walking around this minor chord and then one note is different from it and you have to release the tension that that creates and the pink panther is really on the same skeleton as that
0: another way that it builds tension and then releases it is by doubling the speed that we hear those notes so first we hear it in the rhythm of a one a three now it's twice as fast a one a three a five sort of moves the momentum along.
1: And that's sort of a comedy pacing, too, where someone's tiptoeing, tiptoeing, and then they go a little faster.
0: Right, I think it's meant to be evocative, yes, of tiptoeing or sneaking. And yeah, I do agree with your observation of it being essentially music for the jewel heist. Uh, I noted in the movie that the theme would play in the score pretty much only when we were seeing the Jewel Thief characters, David Niven and Capucine, do their sneaking around. It was not music for Inspector Clouseau, the character who became the most famous character out of the series of movies.
1: Nor was it music for a cartoon panther. And yet, that's what it became, and that's what it ultimately was. I think that that association being inadvertent is one of the most satisfying things here. I think that if they had put that panther in front of Mancini and said, write music for this, he would not have thought to write this kind of mysterioso, spooky, jazzy, winking music because it's just a panther that pokes at the letters in the credits the implication that somehow this panther playing with the letters of the credits corresponds to that slinky music is what makes that credit sequence so satisfying and so memorable it's this kind of artistic connection that they stumbled into you know what i mean Like, I don't think that there's anything about the Panther character that evokes that music, but once you stick the two of them together, it's, as you've said before, John, the kind of transcendent, it's something bigger than either of them. Why does that Panther... Sound like that? I don't know, hard to put into words, but it feels right. It feels kind of potent. It feels worth paying attention to. So
0: was the main title written before that credit sequence was animated? Or after? Here's what I
1: got from Mancini's memoir. There were a number of scenes in which David would be slinking around on tippy toes. I started to write a theme for him, one of the few times I wrote a theme before seeing the actual picture. The music was designed as the Phantom Thief music, not to be the Pink Panther theme. I had no idea what DePatty and Freeling were going to come up with, what the Little Pink Panther character would look like, until they showed me a cell, one frame that they had done. I realized that the theme I had written for David Niven's character, The Jewel Thief, was perfect for the opening credits and the cartoon of the Little Pink Panther character. I used it for both. Uh, And now I'm going to skip and read this other thing. Uh, uh, Maybe I should just synopsize that uh, Henry Mancini was leading the band at the Academy Awards one year and decided that the entrance music for David Niven as a presenter should be the Pink Panther theme because he had written it as David Niven's theme. And David Niven went to him backstage and said, that's not really my theme. And he was like, oh, you're right. (laughs) Because it turned into the Panther theme. But initially, it was the Cat Burglar theme and its use at the beginning was kind of a... A happy accident. A happy accident, yeah
0: yeah so i I agree it does wind up being a transcendent association between that music and that cartoon character, but I wonder maybe if it isn't due quite the same praise for that kind of transcendence as you know some of the other score music because it was accidental.
1: yeah, well, that's the old question of whether the artist's intentions or what you're praising when you praise art or not. Uh, I know that it really works. Beautifully and it's remembered because it works beautifully and I think this movie is remembered because those credits work so well, you know,
0: there wasn't as much Synchronizing between the action in the cartoon and the music as I remembered there being I wonder if there winds up being more of that in the later movies because they realized that this was sort of what people were there to see. Yeah. But there were only a few spots where stuff explicitly lined up with the music, like where, you know, there was a big bang or a crash. You know, there were a few bangs and crashes, but in terms of, like, letters being pushed around to the rhythm of a push, a push, that didn't happen.
1: No, that's right. I think that that effect is actually good. It makes you feel that this music is somehow the character of what's going on, rather than that it's, you know, as they call it, Mickey Mousing, that it's just there to characterize each individual motion. It is there to characterize the world of this Panther character who doesn't speak, doesn't really have a motivation. He's just a Panther. (laughs) Let me say, while we're listening to bits of this, that one of Mancini's great strengths, I think, is that he had this kind of relationship with the players, and he would always get really authentic. He'd use all these pop sounds, and the players would be into it, and you can hear it. Like, these falls at the end of the brass hits are so good on this I recording. love those falls.
0: I think of those falls every time I want to write a similar effect. I think, how can I get falls
1: that long? Well, yeah, the one at the end is maybe the longest in recorded history, but... Yeah. A fall is when, you know, a brass player hits a note, and then instead of just stopping, they trail down at the end. It uh, has this organic quality of something kind of sinking, or the water flowing out of it, or it's just, it makes it softer and stickier cooler. and cooler, sexier. It's like some yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't yeah. know, I don't know, man. It's written in the score. It's not like the players are making this up, but when Mancini is leading the band, they do it like it's just in their blood. They have to do it.
0: Yeah, it's written in this score. You can see these diagonally descending wavy lines coming off of these notes.
1: That mean, I mean, all this stuff. This is what's fascinating to me about this music. And this includes the makeout music, includes the party music throughout the score. It all has to be written out, and these charts get put in front of players, and they're told, you know, play some tinkly cocktail music. And they have to become that band, and then, you know, the next thing they're doing, they're being a ski resort band. There's just a real commitment in each of these source pieces. Like this is really good source music. It
0: really is good source music. It's such good swinging '60s cocktail lounge setting music. It, you know, there's a lot of that out there. You know, you buy these CDs at the Starbucks cash register full of this stuff, and this really is the cream of it.
1: Yeah, and it's because Mancini knew how to write it, and he knew how to get the performances, and he was just tuned in really well. So when I say he was a good DJ, that's a joke on the expense of the movie, but not at his expense at all. This is It's right. really skilled stuff and really skilled performance. You know, when you hear this, Champagne and Quail, you think, okay, that's like cocktail music, sure. And then when you hear this, the next track, Piano and Strings... think oh sure that's like uh, cocktail music and then you hear this royal blue the next track you think oh sure that's like you know like some cocktail music but this is a progression of different gradations of cocktail music that he had to sort of envision each of these atmospheres and it does have you know these atmospheres actually map out what's happening dramatically in the scene that the dialogue in the scene doesn't really. He's sort of building these tiers to give you a sense of progression. And he's building it out of different textures of cocktail music. And that requires a certain level of specificity that I think for someone like me, who's just enjoying it and doesn't, you know, I don't play this kind of music, and I don't write this kind of music. I'm impressed just by that ability to reach in the different drawers know where the different drawers within the world of cocktail music are i feel like that's a skill yeah
0: here here to that i wouldn't want anybody to think that we're knocking this music as music for being just jazzy cocktail music i have great respect for jazzy cocktail music
1: yeah i mean so do i i'm just saying like those of you who don't think about jazzy cocktail music that often you might think well it's kind of one thing but this album and Mancini's work here shows that it is an infinite number of things. (laughs) Yeah, it's
0: all things to all cocktails.
1: He's picking, uh, as I said, from among different drawers, but he's also inventing a little bit. That's kind of the thrill of working in these more popular styles. Like the style is kind of established for you, but you're also always putting your own spin on the vibe. Each piece has its own vibe. So the kind of palette of cocktail music that he lays out over the course of the movie, I think is its own achievement, even if it's not a film scoring achievement. Yeah, so this Pink Panther theme at the beginning is supposedly the Jewel Thief plot theme, and we hear it throughout the movie. (laughs) Sort of every time it shows up, it's like a reminder. Don't you remember you're watching a movie about a Jewel Thief? Oh, right, (laughs) da-dum-da-dum. Oh yeah, there's a... Quote unquote crime taking place in this quote unquote movie. Yeah, so it has these Dedant figures,
0: uh, you know, have a sort of footstep quality, as we've been talking. They kind of sound sneaky and slinky. But again, yeah, they're only for when the jewel thieves are sneaking or slinking or footstepping. When Inspector Clouseau is walking around, he gets this kind of goofy, galumphing footstep music.
1: And only a very little bit of it. It's only in a couple places. It's-
0: yeah, but that was specifically, like, here are the the goofy, galumphing footsteps of Inspector Clouseau.
1: Right. With it, like a uh, muted trombone or something. But overall, the score, the dramatic scoring, I didn't think was so great. And that's not on Mancini's shoulders, really. I think this movie posed an insoluble problem, but there's a lot of it that's kind of like, I'll remind you that this is a comedy by hitting it with the comedy hammer.
0: <laughs> yeah, there, like, like for example, when there's a collision on the ski slopes, Robert Wagner skis over David Niven and it's scored like a Mickey Mouse cartoon. There it was a very cartoon sound effect with music.
1: The epitome of this is at the very end. The whole final sequence is a costume party, and both David Niven and Robert Wagner end up in identical gorilla costumes. Are you laughing yet? (laughs) Did I say gorilla? (laughs) Gorilla costumes. Get it?
0: Yeah. There's there's more gorillas. How about how about now? Are you laughing at more gorillas?
1: (laughs) Two gorillas. You gotta (laughs) be kidding me. Three gorillas. Aren't there actually three gorillas? Oh right, because there's also some kind of oh no, there's only two gorilla costumes. I think he, he ends up in one by knocking out. There's there's yeah, like well, a, they're, they're an upright British are three gentle- different
0: people who wear gorilla
1: there are three costumes. three different people who
0: wind up wearing. Maybe there are only two gorilla costumes between them, and then they all drive around in cars.
1: Yeah, and there's and the, it's a Benny Hill sketch. Right. Well, so it's the Benny Hill moment that I wanted to mention. So the climax of this hilarity to remind you that it is hilarity is a cue that on the soundtrack, at least, is called Shades of Senate," referring to silent comedy and Max Senate. And it is this rinky-tink piano craziness that means... With
0: a honky-tonk banjo and...
1: It's like, you know, in the old days when comedy was wacky, we're doing it again. It's so forced and contrived. The Time Magazine said a sense of desperation. And to me that's what this kind of comedy scoring always is. If you bring in music that tries to convince you that the goings on are hilarious, it usually points up how unhilarious they would have been if the music wasn't pushing so hard and When Mancini tries to push, it always exposes how heavy a load he is trying to push and how much force he needs to exert. And I don't think any of that really comes off.
0: No, I agree. Well, but Andy, if we're saying that he's pushing too hard with the comedy hammer, but we're praising his ability to write slinky, jazzy music, then surely the action music that he wrote for the heist sequences, that must be... Subtle and and well thought out, right? Is that your sarcasm voice? I didn't mind the heist music. Oh, all right, that was my sarcasm voice because I thought that music was, <laughs> I thought that music was sort of weirdly passive and repetitive and not.
1: You're talking about the like bo dong dong bo dong dong thing at the beginning.
0: Yeah, I think you're even giving it more interest than it has. <laughs> I think it's just dum bum bum, dum bum bum over some bongos. <laughs>
1: I thought that was okay. I thought that if this movie had made occasion for more of that, it would have felt like it had some momentum. And that's actually the first moment, and we're talking about two minutes into the movie. That's when I first thought, hey, he wrote Charade too around the same time, and that's sort of like a really good movie with kind of this vibe that this movie didn't stick with. Yes, it wasn't thrilling and wonderful and unique. It would not have gone on my 25 scores ever list, but it would have been better.
0: Well, if he had committed to taking that very skeletal uh, line and then, you know, putting more stuff on top of it and developing it out, yeah, maybe it would have gotten better, but I just feel like what he actually put there to score the action was just uh, uh, not much. It's pretty not much, right?
1: Uh, I, guess, I guess I enjoyed the not much moments because of how little I enjoyed the oh no, I'm about to go off a cliff music. <laughs> <laughs> That was David Niven, by the way, who I sort of felt bad for him. Like, it's David Niven. He's not supposed to go, oh, no, and and ski (laughs) off a cliff. Wasn't it Robert Wagner who wound up skiing off a cliff into David Niven? They both do. In the previous right. scene, when David Niven's masterful jewel theft plan involves stealing her dog, and then he fake tries to stop the kidnapper. Oh, right. He breaks his leg, and Henry Mancini comes in to tell you that it's getting funny by playing this music <laughs> that's like... was <to laughs> embarrassing. Mostly on Blake Edwards' behalf, it's embarrassing. I feel like Henry Mancini showed up and... You know what choice did he have? Like, what could he have done that would have been smoother? I guess sticking to the party music, even when this pseudo-comedy kicked in, would have maybe been smoother. That's but That's sort
0: had of to. what he did. That's as sort much of much as he possible. Did, though, that a lot is what of he did. the yeah, a lot of the music that's playing over people skiing around is the instrumental version of the song from the soundtrack. Doesn't have anything to do with anything that happens in the movie, but it's a pretty good song. We see a performance of it
1: uh, being sung in Italian, being sung in Italian with an "I do not give a damn about my accent." Accent being sung in American, just pronouncing the letters of Italian.
2: Italian. <laughs>
0: apologize for the crassness of my American ear hearing that I thought that was a fun performance
1: oh it was great I thought that scene was the best scene in the movie because it let down any pretense that this is other than a party you see the entire cast sitting and having a drink and I believe that is really the cast really having a drink while they watch <laughs> this dance take place Fran Jeffries gives a great sincere uh, open-faced sexy dancing performance almost in a single take and this is right at the center of the movie and they just sing a song there is no justification for it right and i felt like that was when the movie was closest to being honest about what it was it just wanted it to just sit in the hotel bar and have a girl dance around and when that was what was happening i was okay with it
2: the il giorno night, the night, e night, the night, l'incertezza del the night, the so, the night, un desiderio solo a non farti the è the pulce
0: yeah i thought that singer did a good job i thought that was a fun sequence and i like that song the name of the singer that, whose performance we liked is uh, Fran Jeffries, and the name of the song is It Had Better Be Tonight. The lyric is...
2: If you're ever gonna kiss me, it had better be tonight, while the mandolins are playing.
1: Well, you only hear it in English in that background version of the later party. The song she sings is called "Meglio Stasera. And then that song, you hear that song over everything,
0: a lot of things that happen in the movie. You hear it in different versions. There's a, like a soft guitar version of it playing over Claudia Cardinale's dinner party in the wonderful. beginning.
2: We call him the juggler. I've never really known a man like him. He can keep ten girls in the air at once and make each one happy. Amazing. Sort of a... Contemporary Don Juan. That's it. Ah. There's a difference. Sir so Charles's predecessor was forced to climb balconies and fight duels. And, as I understand it, to keep his women separate from apart. Now Charles, on the other hand, rides a Ferrari, enters with a key and resorts to collective bargaining. <laughs> Which
0: can I say, okay, we'll in addition to all the come. creepy things that are being said we'll over the dinner drive. table, that dinner table Maybe is like an, an absurdly them tiny table. How they all fit around that table. It's like they chose that table as the only thing that they could use to get all those people to stay in the same frame. It's like they're all sitting around a sideboard. So anyway, that song because it was decided that this was you know, one of the pillars of the soundtrack gets tracked into all these other spots in the film. I mentioned the dinner party and then on the ski slopes we hear this instrumental version with a, an accordion playing the melody.
1: So here's a thought I had about that. Mancini wrote this song special for the movie. He wrote it. Obviously, it was written prior to filming, but that constitutes a kind of scoring in itself. The ambiance, the atmosphere of this song, its kind of minor romantic quality, vaguely wistful, but with this punchy chorus, by virtue of just being there in the texture, Again, like I said, hard to put into words why, but it becomes the atmosphere of the whole movie. And that atmosphere has to be chosen. If he had written a song in major, or if he had written a slower song, or whatever the character of that song is, it becomes this kind of down payment on a character for the whole movie. And in that respect, I thought he made a pretty good choice. I thought that song did help the movie, by being in the air all the time. It suggests a kind of romance to your European vacation and as much as possible made the case for fantasizing about being a jet-setting, uh, high-society jerk. <laughs> uh,
0: yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's a great tagline for this song.
1: <laughs> Did you not feel that way? That like it was used as incidental scoring for a lot of scenes And that wasn't a bad thing. That was probably working on the movie's behalf.
0: Yeah, I agree. Okay. I mean, I still thought of it as sort of being a soundtrack moment, but I suppose you're right that it was a well-chosen soundtrack moment and it was derived out of this well-chosen song texture and feeling.
1: Yeah, I mean, there's all these movies where there's a real soundtrack score where someone really picks existing songs or you know, someone like Wes Anderson makes like a mixtape of the things he wants his movie to sound like, and they're all pre-existing things. Right. That can be dramaturgically real. That can bring something of real substance to a movie. So here it's kind of that same choice. As you say, it's soundtrack music. I'm not sure I've ever heard that distinction made before, but I totally get what you're saying. It's soundtrack music instead of score to picture. Right. But it's still a very distinct dramatic choice, even though I don't think this movie was brought all the way to really working i thought that mancini's instinct for that was shown to be good and i think in a movie that really does work like charade you see the tune he wrote for the beginning of charade becomes the atmosphere of that movie and it really is right on it really supports what the movie is trying to be
0: yeah thanks for reminding me that he scored charade because it's been fun to kind of have little glimpses of that (laughs) <laughs> peek into my thoughts as we were talking about this movie. Yeah shall we I really to like to, charade.
1: Shall we listen to the opening <laughs> from Charade? It's so great. Yeah. <laughs> So again, I'm just saying that a song can kind of be a world. A song can be an atmosphere. And if you pick the right song, then you kind of have planted your movie in the right soil. And I think that decision was made well. And it's just, it's really just down to the actual script of this movie.
0: Yeah, and we got to give credit to Mancini that if you're going to pick a guy to create a song that you can plant as the flag for what your movie feels like, well, you, you know, you can't get better than him. I mean, he, he wrote this tune. He wrote, uh, like we we're saying, charade. He wrote Moon River for Breakfast at Tiffany's.
1: Right. He He's a master. Uh, I think he's he's a wonderful talent. And uh, yeah. I think that just saying that he was good with the musicians and he's good with pop music doesn't really get at the depth of what that skill was. I just don't think that this is the movie that shows off his abilities to the... No. And I don't think anyone would ever have thought that. They just thought, well, this is the one with the Pink Panther theme in it, and people love that.
0: Everybody knows that theme. Yeah, no, that's absolutely what they thought. Even A Shot in the Dark, I also remember the sort of the main theme from A Shot in the Dark being one that I really loved. Uh, It's the one that goes... Oh, sure,
1: sure. You know, this soundtrack, which I listened to a few times this week, those are some catchy background tunes. I like Champagne and Quail. I have been humming it. (laughs) Yeah.
0: Yeah, without a doubt, Mancini is a master songsmith and melodist. Yeah. And... Those talents absolutely belong on some kind of list of greatest such talents. As you say, this is not a sufficient showcase for them. And when we talked about the mission, we talked about how much we liked the music on its own, how much we liked uh, Morricone as a composer, but because the film wasn't a successful film, there wasn't a chance for the score to be a successful score. That was my takeaway anyway. And I think I'm finding myself in a similar position for this score.
1: Yeah, at least. This is the kind of movie that wouldn't have called for anything particularly ambitious in terms of the dramatic function of the music. It just called for a kind of, I don't want to keep saying DJing, but uh, it just called for Keeping the vibe going, keeping things light, keeping things moving along, and it's a movie that didn't really allow for him to entirely keep things light and keep things moving along. Right. To me, it's an unsuccessful movie, an annoying movie, with (laughs) a perfectly reasonable professional job by a great film composer, but the soundtrack album is so much more satisfying than the score to the movie. As you say, in this movie, people seem to be playing the Pink Panther soundtrack during the scenes to make their party more fun. And I think if you put on the Pink Panther soundtrack at your party, it would make your party more fun. And that's the extent to which it's a good score. Yep. Everything that tries to join and be a collaborator with the movie and getting something done, there's nothing to get done. Yep.
0: All right. So I think it sounds like we're sort of winding towards where we... uh place this relative to our other scores. Astute listeners will have noted that you, Andy, have the exact identical run of five movies to begin your list in the same order that the AFI does. You have not deviated from the AFI's order at
1: all. I have been conservative uh, in relation to the AFI list. I have thought, well, they had their reasons at every time, but I cannot allow that to continue.
0: All right. So how low does this go on your list?
1: The debate for me is whether it goes above or below How the West Was Won. To me, On Golden Pond is definitely better than this because it dramatically furthers the cause of the movie and makes a movie that I think without the score, I wouldn't have liked as much into a movie that I found palatable. This did not make the movie particularly palatable to me. I think that what How the West Was Won did was obviously more elaborate, but I also felt like it kind of didn't help the movie as much as it could have, and it probably had more to work with, so that's kind of a greater failing there. Uh, but I think overall it just makes more sense to me to say How the West is Won is a special score and this isn't, so I think this is going to go at the bottom for me. All right, so my bottom looks slightly different than yours. I have the mission at
0: the bottom because of the principled stand I took against the overall failure of the project, uh, and then how the west was one is above that but i agree i am also going to put this at the bottom of my list underneath the mission and much as i did when i put the mission at the bottom i praised ennio morricone and wanted to make clear how much i appreciated his music i want to do the same here i think mancini is a genius i think that the pink panther tune absolutely belongs in whatever pantheon you want to build of all-time great tunes
1: Absolutely. And I even think the Pink Panther tune as the accompaniment to these opening credits can belong in your pantheon of opening credit vibes. Sure.
0: Yeah, I agree with that too.
1: And that is, of course, why it's on the list. And I'm just saying I don't think that that, as a percentage of the running time is sufficient to allow it to go on this list.
0: Right. That's why it is definitely on the list. But that, in my book, does not a score make. And I think uh, it was very damning when you said that the soundtrack is much more enjoyable than the film or its score. And I think that when the score is just being a score in this movie, it's nothing special. What is special in the movie are Mancini's songwriting, his melody writing. Those things are special, but those things are not a score. They don't relate to the storytelling. They don't appreciate the dramatic events in a way, as you say, that furthers the audience's enjoyment. In this case, there aren't really dramatic events (laughs) that even can be furthered. So I can't put it on a list of scores because that is not what it is good at. It is good at a lot of things, but it is not good at being a score. So it can't be on my list of the top scores.
1: I think we're on exactly the same page as to the judgment call, but I don't entirely embrace that distinction about what's a score and what isn't. I'm thinking of Mancini's score, which really is a score to Touch of Evil, which also consists of a lot of source or source like music. And yet it has been chosen to create a dramatic atmosphere for the purposes of furthering the the drama of the movie. And it's really effective. And that's what I've been trying to say about the pop music here. Like it is a dramatic choice when you pick background music and write it specifically for the movie. So I'm perfectly happy to call a mostly source score a score. I just think that in this case, the material that it was trying to score had so few intentions that there was just nothing for it to achieve.
0: Okay. I think that's, uh, that's a different approach to the same conclusion.
1: Yeah, exactly.
0: Well, next time we'll be looking at Alex North's score for the 1951, A Streetcar Named Desire.
1: Yeah, I'm looking forward to that. Have you seen this movie, Andy? I don't remember. If I've seen it, it was so long ago that it will be as though seeing it afresh.
0: I'm in the same boat.
1: But I admire Alex North's music, and I think that the assignment here is a very promising one, so I'm really looking forward to this. Uh, And we'll see you then.
0: We're not even going to try to banter. It's getting old now, I guess.
1: It does get kind of old, right? As it's it's so (laughs) self-indulgent and self-regarding. Who cares? It would be nice if there was a thing...
0: So I bet, Andy, that a bunch of people have listened to our podcast for the first time because they thought, oh, the Pink Panther, I like that. And they've gotten to the end and heard us kind of whining about how it's no good. So I bet we've, uh, you know, convinced a lot of people to keep listening if they want to hear how things that they thought they liked are kind of uh, no good, according to these whiny guys.
1: We're just telling it like it is. I hope that you can hear in our complaining that we're enthusiasts. We're not. Um, we're not here to knock things down. Look, all right. Did you enjoy watching the Pink Panther, even though you didn't enjoy the Pink Panther? Cause I did.
0: Kinda. Yeah, kinda.
1: Yeah, I did. Uh, so some of it. I felt disappointed by it, but it's fun. Who who doesn't enjoy like dipping into 1963 and seeing some crappy? embarrassing sex comedy.
0: Yeah, so so in this episode, you heard us talk about uh, something that maybe you thought that you liked and we didn't. Uh, <laughs> and maybe next episode, you'll hear us talk about something that, I don't know if we'll like it, but uh, but maybe it's something that you didn't know as much about, and we can say why it's good.
1: I will try to remember that sometimes the enthusiasm that I feel that doesn't seem like it generates as many words is still worth expressing because i just enjoy this stuff i just enjoy listening to movie music i i like the game that every composer who writes movie music is playing and i like the product hey i like listening to movie music too andy let's uh let's listen to some more next time let's do that and we hope you'll
0: join us We <laughs> should cut it after okay. <laughs> after next time <laughs>